Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Gateway brought to you by the Northern Illinois University College of Business where your future is without boundaries and our approach is to. I am joined as always with my incredible co-host Dr. Biagio Palese. Hello Biagio! Ciao a tutti! Welcome, welcome to another great episode. For this episode... The Gateway will be taking to the putting greens with hopes of finally beating the windmill as we discuss innovation, hospitality, and providing a unique entertainment experience for customers with Putt Shack CEO Joe Rankin. Putt Shack is a leading concept in the emerging and growing market of competitive socializing. Combining a tech-infused mini-golf game with exceptional food and beverage offering, Putt Shack has multi-generational appeal. Patented Track-A-Ball technology allows guests to play a point-scoring game surrounded by an upscale and exciting environment. Putt Shack currently operates nine total locations in the U.S. and U.K. with 11 more locations coming soon. Joe Rankin is a 20-plus year C-suite executive, current CEO of Putt Shack, former CEO, Top Golf International. Joe's core experience is focused on middle market businesses with multiple industries in his background. He finds key inflection points to help the company develop. At the start of 2019, Joe joined Putcheck as its CEO and member of its board of directors. Joe served as CEO of Topgolf for five years and joined when there was just one location in the U.S. Topgolf was acquired in early 2021 by Callaway in a transaction valued at $2.6 billion. It is a pleasure to have you on the Gateway, Joe. Welcome and thanks so much for being here. Russ, thank you very much for having me. Biagio, thank you very much. Excited to be here. Happy Friday, everyone. Yes, happy Friday. That is the best way to start. Um, and as we're talking about starting, I always like to, to start these conversations at, at your beginning. How, how did you end up where you are? We read a wonderful bio and a, a lot of experiences, but but where did it start for you? Yeah, it was, a, it was um, it's been a journey. I'll just say that. So, I, um, so I'm Graduated uh, from the College of Business at NIU uh, with a degree in accounting. So um, I started my career as a CPA. I worked for Grant Thornton, um, did public accounting for four years. Um, And then actually spent years trying to get out of accounting. Um, And I knew knew for a very long time that I wanted the opportunity to uh, lead a business or start a business if I could. Um, the the accounting background and, and the work I did in public accounting was was really invaluable as part of that process. Um, but I I did that for four uh, four and a half years. Left um, went into publishing, originally on the accounting and finance side of World Book Publishing, best known as a re- reference publisher, best known for the encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was there, went back and got my MBA at, at Northwestern. And um, as I was finishing up, uh, it happened to be a time in history where technology was really impacting publishing and reference publishing. And um, so the company wanted to uh, get into retail publishing, uh, which it had not done before. And and I had the opportunity to lead that startup business. So I transitioned out of finance and accounting and actually went in and and published about 150 children's nonfiction books. uh, did a partnership with a UK publisher, a distribution partnership with Random House, uh, licensed the the titles to about a dozen countries around the world. Um, and so did that for another three and a half years. And then um, the, the vision was growing exponentially. The, uh, they decided to roll it into their educational division. Um, and I realized if I was likely going to stay in publishing, I'd probably have to move to New York. At that point in time, I was married and um, had two kids and thought that probably wasn't going to be where I wanted to end up. So 
helped transition the division I started um, into the educational division and then had an opportunity to leave and become the CFO for the Arena Football League. So I moved from publishing children's books into sports. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> uh, two and a half years later, became the chief operating officer. So I, I joined the AFL essentially when they were looking to migrate from mid-sized markets like Des Moines to Chicago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the NFL had uh, changed a bylaw allowing NFL owners to buy an AFL team in the respective markets. So uh, we were looking at upgrading ownership, et cetera. So um, I had the opportunity to do everything um, really with growing a sports league, which was a lot of fun. So we picked up NBC when they lost the NBA on Sunday afternoon. So we had four years um, on Sunday afternoons, uh, contracts, uh, broadcast contracts with ESPN. I did league development, so I sold teams. So we ultimately ended up with 13 NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball owners. So I sold teams to people like Jerry Jones, who owns the Dallas Cowboys, Arthur Blank, who owns the Falcons, Tom Benson in New Orleans. Um, Others were partnerships like Denver was um, John Elway, Pat Bowen, who owns the Broncos, and Stan Kroenke, who owns the Nuggets, the Avalanche, and and the Pepsi Arena there. And then guys outside of sports like John Bon Jovi. That's exactly. I was going to ask if if his hair looks as good in person as it does on TV. (laughs) The fact that he actually has hair is is already (laughs) right. right, Correct. (laughs) Um, And I learned a tremendous amount from all of those people. Um, Every one of those sports owners had typically made hundreds of millions or billions of dollars doing something else. I mean, Arthur Blank, uh, who owns the Falcons, is uh, one of the founders of Home Depot. Right. Right. Um, John Bon Jovi um, is a workaholic and one of the best marketing people I've ever met in my life. Right. So. um, So anyway, so that was great. I did that for eight and a half years and then um, was approached to be the CEO of this company that nobody ever heard of called Topgolf. Um, And there was just one location outside of Washington, D.C. in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, It was a very small company that was valued at, at $30 million, um, went and kind of did a secret shopper visit out there. And um, it was a re- it was a cold, miserable, rainy January day in, in D.C. <laughs> but I saw um, I saw a guy working on his game. I saw a, um, a two couples where they went and played a game together. And then the women came in, drank wine and talked for two hours and the guys kept playing. And a family of four, which you like, I could, I could hear the conversation at home, right? Like <clears throat> um, mom said, we're going to go do something as a family today. And, and it was, you know, a boy who's probably 10 to 12 and a girl who was probably six to eight. And dad said, okay, fine. Then we're going to top golf, right? And you could, you could like cut the tension with a knife when they got there. The girl didn't want to be there at all. But as soon as she scored, like over a 15, 20 minute period of time, you could just see all of the family dynamics change into a point that they really were having a good time together. Um, And I just looked around and I said, okay, well, business school teaches you, you can't be all things to all people. Yet this concept is finding a way to do that, right? Um, Now, at the time, we didn't know whether Topgolf was really going to be for golfers, was it going to be an entertainment concept? And and if, if... People who are on the call have been to a Top Golf. The very first Top Golf was nothing like what you'd see today. It, you know, a typical Top Golf today is 104 hitting bays, and it's a 3,000 square foot kitchen with probably a minimum of two bars, um, and probably and does about, I'd say probably six to seven hundred thousand visitors a year per venue. Um, the very first one was a 350 square foot kitchen and it had two deep fryers and two microwave ovens and all the food was coming out in a, a plastic basket and it was a beer and wine only license. Um, and half the technology seemed to not be working on Friday and Saturday <laughs> night, which was your busiest nights of the week. Um, but I could see the opportunity that I thought the business could have. And, and I went home and I, and I told my wife, Patty, I said, I really think this could be a billion dollar business ultimately sold for $2.6 billion to Callaway. 
Um, I was not there through the whole uh, journey, but I was there for an important part of really building the foundation and, and opening 10 locations a year. I think there are now over 80 locations worldwide. Um, so it was great. Um, fast forward a bit, did a few other things after I, I left Topgolf, um, but what I'm doing now with, with Puckjack, I got contacted by the inventors of the game, and the inventors of the game happened to be the same inventors that invented Topgolf. I see. Okay, so they're identical twin brothers out of London. Um, they partnered with another guy um, whose strength is really did the design and everything. And um, so they called me after they opened their first location in West London, um, asked me if I'd get on a plane, take a look at it because they wanted to roll it out across the US, the UK, and ultimately the rest of the world. I have had many people tell me, I hope I enjoyed my time at Top Golf because it's lightning in a bottle. It doesn't happen very often, <clears throat> which is a, a true statement as I've go along in my career. Um, but I walked in and it took literally all of 60 seconds to go, oh my gosh, they did it again. So I joined in January of 19. Again, there was one location. Um, we opened up two more locations in London um, later that year. Uh, raised about $40 million to begin building the foundation in the US. <clears throat> um, closed that uh, about 90 days before the pandemic hit. Um, fortunately, we ended up raising more than we were targeting, which was great because we had extra money in the bank when the pandemic hit. Managed through the pandemic, began building the foundation in the U.S., opened our first two locations, in it, first one in Atlanta, second in Chicago and the suburbs in Oak Brook. Um, and then this last year, we opened up three more locations, Boston, Miami, and St. Louis. Um, and this year, we will open up um, depending on a few things, somewhere between six and eight locations. We'll have four um, in the first half of this year. We'll open up in Houston, Scottsdale, Denver, and Pittsburgh. And then in the second half of the year, Dallas, Philadelphia, uh, Nashville, and the second Atlanta location. So it's been, it's been, a, it's been fun. It's been great. Um, I have an in there is an incredible team, many of whom I've worked with before at, at um, either Top Golf or other businesses that that I've had the opportunity to lead. Um, and you know, we'll we'll take what when I started. Well, actually, when I started, I was the first U.S. associate back in 2019. So it was me in my home office, um, about a half a dozen people in London. And then the one venue, which had about 70 people, and we finished last year with about 1,200. We should finish this year with about 3,000 and a run rate revenue of just under a quarter of a billion. Um, we raised another 63 million in 2021 during the pandemic because um, we saw incredible property deals to do. And then fourth quarter of last year, we closed our senior debt deal for $150 million with BlackRock. So we've raised about a quarter of a million dollars of growth capital between debt and equity. That's a very, that's a quick summary. Like, hold on. <laughs> uh, okay. So, you know, everyone have a great day. That was impressive and amazing. And that's all we needed to get from it. Um, I, so I have like 50 different questions going through my head right now. So um, it, I really do cherish this opportunity. I, I think your perspective is one that um, it, not everyone gets to gets to have, and and I'm I'm very grateful for you sharing this with us. Um, so you, when I'm when I'm thinking about everything you were saying, it, it sounds like you're a person that takes something that might be on the upswing and and really builds it really fleshes it out is that something that as a person you enjoy or 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 do you like coming into something that's already established and and making it better because I think those pardon my ignorance but might be two different skill sets then is that correct or am I completely off base no you're you're spot on I mean I think <clears throat> there's there's kind of three different ways that I typically think about when you can come into a business. One is you want to do a startup. Right? I have a son-in-law who is working on a startup and, and I try to tell him it's really hard to do a startup and he is learning. It is really hard to do a startup. <laughs> right. Um, and he's incredibly talented. Um, but to be completely candid, I would not be good doing a true startup. Right. I see. Okay. At Butt Shock, <clears throat> there was already one venue open. At Top Golf, there was already one U.S. venue open. And so, 
there are so many things that have to be done in order to take it from, you know, an idea on a piece of paper, actually getting to a, an initial location, right? Your first beta location and, and start asking the question, what works, what doesn't work, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What I really like about where I have kind of been in my career is looking and saying, okay, I see what, what's been created and then have the ability to create a vision of where that can go and how to build the business and scale the business, right? So a lot of founders are really good at, you know, at inventing something, right? Creating an initial business. Um, they wear 30 different hats and they're involved in everything. Mm-hmm. And they have a very hard time scaling, right? So one of our co-founders, so we have three co-founders, the, the guys who invented the technology, they're I, literally 60-year-old I, identical twin brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Adam Breeden, who, as I mentioned, did the design and, and the initial food and beverage and lighting, and he's incredibly gifted. He has now done five social entertainment concepts. Wow. He has a couple others in the U.S. He's also from London. He has two that are also in the Chicago area. One is called um, Flight Club, which is a technology-based art concept. The other is called Ace Bounce, which is a ping pong concept. Um, and while Adam loves the idea of watching Pacek grow and and how and you know how that's happening, et cetera, he would hate actually doing it. Because that's not what, that's not what excites him. Like he just he just launched a new concept in a partnership with Formula One um, in London, and so like you know after eighteen months he's like okay well what's my next idea, right? And he and, and he's great at that. That wouldn't be my strength, right? Mm-hmm. You love though is saying okay, who is our target market? Who is our guest? right? How do we build a foundation to actually grow and scale this business? What do we need to be thinking about today or day one for where we want to be in five years? How do we work backwards so that we start thinking about how to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, but you also get the opportunity to kind of build that culture, right? What, what are the things that I think will make a company really special, Right. And be able to go, okay, well, let's put that together. To me, that is so much that's so fun and exciting. Right. Now there's the next phase, which is, okay, I'll take Top Golf as an example. Top Golf is opening 10 locations a year in the US. They're opening in international locations. They've now been around for in the US, they've been around for 15 years, right? Um, they've got probably, I'm going to close to 20,000 associates, all the systems are in place. And now you're managing that process, right? You're right. managing that process. You're not inventing that and creating, you're trying to hold what that culture looks like, et cetera. And that's a different process and a different skill set, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'll probably, by the time Pacek gets to that, I may have retired by that point in time, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I think kind of where I have, found myself to be the most energized and, and I think have the greatest impact and, and success is building the foundation, building the talent. How do we approach this? What can we learn from what others did really good or that we think were missed opportunities? How can we you know, replicate what they did well <laughs> and not make mistakes that we think you know, others could have done better? So... Uh- Specific, I, I'm I'm going to even toss back from all of your experiences that you mentioned. A, a lot of it has to do with with people coming and looking for a, a good time and, and choosing to be at your business compared to some of the other ones that it's like I need this or yeah, it, it's it's I'm going and getting my groceries, things like that. Um, I put that kind of under the umbrella of hospitality and and just showing a good time. It, I think those companies end up relying on on the staff, on your your people, your human resources, your human capital far more than than many other you know a consulting company and things like that. You need to get the work done and if the work's good, we can deal with it. How do you how do you establish good people? I I mean I've gone to places that I won't go back to just because it 
it was a bad experience from that human interaction side of things. And rightfully so, it wasn't the company. It just might have been a bad day for the people that I interacted with. Uh, but that that was what I took away. That so yeah, exactly right. And, and it was a valid one. And I try to shift that, but it's still there. I, I get away from it. So how do you try to shape that then? Yeah, it was, I, it's a great question. And it's important. I think it's important at every company, but I will say to your point in hospitality and in what we call our, our so you know competitive socializing space, uh, which falls within hospitality, mm-hmm. um, it's what people, it's what your guests see the most, right? right. Now, my view and and part of the leadership style that I have is, I believe that a huge part of our success, or if we're lack thereof, if we're not is based around the culture that we create and develop, right? And companies say it all the time, like, you know, they create a mission statement, they throw it up, they, you know, oh, culture is really important to us. Um, and, you know, it's kind of like one of those things that people feel like they have to say. The question is, do they really live it, okay? And, and right. I expect, I have to say, okay, what is our culture? What do we want to stand for? What is going to make us special and different? We have this phenomenal game that you can't play anywhere else in the world. We own a patent around it and, and it's great. We have unbelievable um, food and beverage offering, restaurant offering in the, in the casual dining space. It's great. And I want people to, to come and play and go, oh my God, I come back just to eat. Like that's part of the target. Um, <clears throat> but the most important aspect is our associates, right? And, and we focus in on things that some people might consider silly or or not really a big deal but we don't have employees we have associates and we have team members right because we work alongside them they work alongside us we don't have customers we have guests right you invite a guest into your home we are inviting our guests into Pudshock for an experience right so um early on when we were beginning to build the foundation in the u.s um, Bob Dotson, who is our vice president of operations, he's somebody that I worked with um, uh, at Top Golf, uh, and he was there for a long time. And, and he is all about the guest, right? And he's all about those. You know, we 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 had our our jar any anytime anybody said the word employee, the e word, or um, um, <laughs> I'm not calling them guests but calling them customers. You had to put a dollar into the jar, right? Nice, nice. But one of the things Bob said early on is we need to do our branding, right? And an early stage company typically don't focus on branding, right? Because one, it takes a lot of work. It's expensive to do. Um, and it's something, at least within our space, people tend to do after they've opened five or six locations because the founders kind of have this vision of what the brand is, but hasn't really been documented and articulated. Uh-huh. And by the time it was, I need to know our brand. I need to know what we stand for. I need to know who we are because how can I train, how can I develop the training materials for our associates if I can't tell them what it means to be a part of Pachak, right? Right. So he was right. We we brought on our, our CMO. And, and again, one of the things that we did differently is we really hired people at the highest level and invested in those people. Um, Susan Walmsley, who are, who's our CMO, um, was at, Top off back in 2007 when we were scraping and clawing and nobody knew what we were and and was there through 2018 and opened 50 locations from a marketing standpoint. So wow. So we go back and look at like our core. We wrap our business around kind of four things that we use. We call it block. Bring your A game, lead the way, own the fun, and care deeply. Right. And, and within each of those, there are things that you know, there are, are more things that of as far as like what they mean, right? So when I say care deeply, that means we care about our associates, we care about our guests, and we care about the communities that we're part of. And then mm. how do we execute that, right? We know also like if we are going to grow, we have to lead, lead the way, right? So which means you have to take risks, right? So we have to intentionally, continuously try to innovate what Pacheck is, and we have to lead the way in taking risks. Well, we have to reinforce that because if you're going to take risks, then that some things aren't going to work. And right, fail. yeah. If you punish that, then people learn. I'm not going to do that again. 
Mm-hmm. So it's taking all these, these things and then I have to live it, right? I have to believe it and I have to live it in everything that I do. And then the team around me has to do the same thing and so on. Like we don't, we call our central team a central team or support team because our job is to provide vision, lead, and then support those venues because we then have to make sure that all of our site managers believe those core values. But the hardest job in our organization is to be a general manager at one of our venues because they have to get those core values to somebody who may be making $15 an hour bus and tables or, or right. you know, whatever that is. Right. And so it should be a lot easier for me to be able to convince an executive or, you know, somebody who is graduating from NIU and, you know, and is a professional of right. what her values are, it's a whole lot harder for somebody who is, you know, somebody took a job because it, it's a paycheck. They're, you know, they are doing right. it because it's a job to them. Maybe they are, you know, working with us in summers as they go to college, right? But they're not necessarily all looking at paycheck as a career. I would love that because as we're growing, we would love that at every level. Um, but they have to convince those people. And I think success within business is, it is way undervalued and too often overlooked given lip service, but, but not often enough really understood how incredibly important it is to have a great culture with core values that people truly believe in. Yeah, Joe, that that's where that's where I think a lot of times it's easy to push those elements off. I, I know when people talk about our company culture, a lot of times it just feels like we're saying what we need to say because it's supposed to be said. And, and if we don't say it, it's a huge problem. But if we do say it, no one's going to look past that. So uh, you, you mentioned your your leadership style and in, in a lot of different arts you you hear about uh, like a singer's voice and it's not literally their physical voice it's their perspective a writer's perspective what what a director's voice is what they're trying to do in there a lot of times for me I put uh, a leadership style in business as that as that voice and, and really where you're coming from how do you navigate bringing your own authentic self your own perspectives into a company that maybe saying this is what we stand for is there a way to is there a way to mix those together or do you have to just automatically believe in that culture and if it's not there you need to be looking somewhere else or what is what does that look like for you because i know i have a lot of people kind of exploring that and and saying well this one might not fit but maybe it does what does that kind of process look like are are you talking like if somebody goes into a company and, and they said, Hey, here's our culture. Here's what we stand for. Correct. And then you're like, all right, I'm maybe I'm, let's say 60% invested in that one. Or is there, is there a metaphorical percentage that you're like, that's too low. I'm, I, I can't buy into that. Um, Cause I know for me, a lot of times it has to do with how much the paycheck is and I will gladly support any of those, yeah, but right. that's not always a good, that's not always a good way. And that's where you see people sometimes finding themselves in companies that might not be a good fit. Yeah. They're, they're, <clears throat> um Here's what here's kind of how the best way. I, listen, I've been in I've been with some companies over my career that were not a good fit for me culturally. Right, right. right. I've had some executive roles at companies that were not a good fit for me culturally, and and ultimately I, I end you know I ended up leaving those. Um, <clears throat> it's a little bit different, you know, with the, with the people on this call who are graduating college or looking for your first job, right? And um, you know, you may or may not really have the luxury of saying, hey, this is the best fit for me, um, or this isn't the best fit for me, I'm going to look for something else, because, you know, the reality is, I still need a job, right? Um, What I would probably say is, it's important to know, essentially, what's important to you, right? (laughs) So, people who come into Butchak, some may or may not believe in, in, in all of the core values that we have, right? I would hope that they would. I think, you know, again, the people that in the level that I'm interviewing are people who have had a lot of experience, right? Um, 
but there's a lot of young people. I mean, we have, well, let me read that, but we have, we have somebody in our finance department um, who today is their last day. They took another job. Um, sad to see him go. Um, from everything that's been communicated to me, it's not because he, he doesn't like Buttrack. He, he very much does. Um, but there's also a lot of work that goes with the stage that we're at, with a lot of growth that we're at. We're still scaling up that department. It's very hard to be, it's very hard hiring these days. So, so understandably, there's been, you know, there's been some added stress in the role that he has. Right? He's also pretty young. I think, I'm going to guess he's probably 26 to 28 years old. Um, CPA, smart guy, right? But he doesn't also have a lot of things to compare to to say, well, what is the Pachet culture compared to other places that I'll be at, right? So, so while I have other people who have a lot more experience, you go, gosh, I can't believe he's leaving. Like, you know, does he know how unique this culture is? And my answer is he doesn't because he hasn't seen enough to know, right? You can convey, other people can convey, but there's some things you can only get from experience. And, and I say that because He'll go someplace else and either he'll go, hey, that culture that I had, I really miss, right? Or there are some people that go, I'm okay. The culture isn't the most important thing as I'm, you know, I just want to learn skills and et cetera. And, and whether they have a deep culture may or may not be important, right? People have to determine for themselves what's really important for them with whoever they're going to decide to work for. For me, and for our organization, it happens to be important because we think in order to actually create that best guest experience, these are important elements that we have to have throughout our entire organization, okay? But others are going to find out and they're going to come in and, and you know, I mean, the youngest son is going to go into investment banking. He's going to have a very different culture <laughs> in right. than we have you know, at Pacek, but, but he may be fine with that because he may be going, I am learning so much from working on these clients and yeah, I'm working 85 hours a week. And, you know, they don't really care that I work till two o'clock in the morning. I still need to be there eight o'clock the next morning. And, and that's the culture that they have. Mm -hmm. He may be fine with that. No, I'm guessing he's not going to be fine with that for 10 years, but he may be fine <laughs> with that for two or three. Mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. people have to decide some of that on their own. You know, and then make their own assessment of what's really important. You know, is is me learning the most important thing, or is growth of the company the most important thing, or is feeling appreciated the most important thing, or is being paid the most money the most important thing, or what's the combination and what's the weighted balance of that? Right. Wow. Okay. Um, I, I want to toss this next question out and and thank one of our incredible listeners, uh, Carla, for this one, and I really like it because it. I'm assuming that our listeners want to know more about your evolution into a, a CEO. Uh, when you were starting out, did you were were you on the playground? You know, looking at spreadsheets and making decisions and and doing all of that stuff. Was that always a goal, or did it kind of happen just because of what you accomplished along the way? And then along with this, you've even touched on it already talking about your your network and, and how a lot of the people that are still potentially around with you, you've worked with and, and kind of established that one. Was that part of becoming a CEO then and or a mix or any of those things? Yeah, um, it's interesting. Uh, it's a great question. Okay, so I mean, for me, good or bad I knew probably in high school like I want the opportunity to, to start a business lead a business one way or another right um it was always a goal that I had and something that I was I was somewhat driven to try to achieve okay um I was not the smartest student <clears throat> I did not have the best grades um but I think it, it was interesting. Um, uh, I'll sidetrack just for a second here. Um, part of this uh, men's book club and, and one of the guys in it actually um, is part of the University of Chicago. And, and the book we were, um, we're, we're, the book that we were uh, reading is Outliers, <clears throat> talking about success, right? <clears throat> um, and one of, the, one of the premises of the author is, 
you know, like to be an outlier, to be something that's really good, you have to be smart, but only to an extent. You don't have to be a genius, right? Being, you can be smart enough. And we were asking, well, hey, the guy who works at University of Chicago, like what's the difference between somebody who's really smart and succeeds or just smart and succeed? Like, what's the difference? It's, it's, it's not intelligent to me. And his answer was, it's, it's the EQ, it's the emotional intelligence, right? So I think for me, I was very fortunate that I had a good work ethic. I worked hard. I wasn't the smartest guy in the room, but, I, but I, I always wanted to know and learn more, right? I, I would, would always watch to say, okay, well, what, you know, like, why is this working or why is something not working and what can I learn from this? Um, I wish I was a better networker, personal networker. Um, it's one of the things that I've kind of learned along the way to do better. Um, I have made an enormous number of mistakes along the way, right? I, I tell my team a lot, like, you know, I'm now been around for a while and I have some wisdom, but wisdom is one of those things that I tended to get about 10 minutes after I needed it because I really just screwed something up, right? <laughs> so the more I can get gain wisdom from other people and not have to learn through my own mistakes, great. But like, so, I mean, I'll give you the, I mean, when I had the opportunity to lead the publishing startup division, mm -hmm. was 29 years old. I, I can look back now going, I cannot believe that they put me in charge of that. Um, I had probably within six months prior to that had finished up my MBA at Northwestern and, and I already had a finance background. And so I focused on marketing and new business venture, right? And so I happened to be somewhat at the right place at the right time. I was working at a publishing company that was a reference publisher and that's kind of the talent they had in-house. And so when they were looking at doing something new, I was part of a small group of people who would be like, you know, okay. And I, I can look back now and go, if it doesn't work and we get rid of this 29, 30 year old guy, okay, what have we really lost? Right. But for me, it was a great opportunity. I made a ton of mistakes, but in that process, I, we were also able to achieve building a pretty good foundation that enabled them to go, Hey, you know what, this division really has some legs to it. It makes more strategic sense to roll it into another division, right? Which quite frankly, I was upset about at the time, right? But it, I took all of the things I learned from that um, and was able to then bring that to the next opportunity that I had in front of me. Um, it's always, to me, it's all a journey. Life, life in general is all a journey. Your career is all a journey. You will have setbacks and they will be really frustrating or very hard to accept at times. And I have had my share of those, um, but they don't define you if you don't let them. Right. And so you can go, okay, well, what do I want to do? And by the way, you may get to a point of going, I really wanted to do this and then realize it's really not the right fit for you. Right? I, when I, in my top golf days, the first CFO that I hired um, was somebody I knew before, um, wanted the opportunity, wanted the role. And after a little over a year in the role, he came to me and he just said, Joe, this was everything you told me it was going to be, but I can't handle the stress. I, I mean, we were an early stage company at the time. We were, you know, and, and a year after I started we, was the Great Recession. So there was a difficult window of time. And he just said, I can't sleep at night because I'm not sure where the money's going to be to make it for the next six months, right? And I could respect that, right? I'm like, okay, well then let's find the right spot for you. And, and he's, he's now the head of a finance for a, a village, which is like the perfect fit for him. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Russ. That, I don't know if that answered Claire's question or not. Yeah, it did. I, I think so, at least for me. <laughs> Joe, I, again, I, there are not many times when, when we have a guest where I can just listen to the guest and just trying to absorb as much as I can without asking so many questions. Uh, but you, you brought to the show already so many important points. Uh, a few of them that I strongly believe and I want to emphasize when, when you mentioned like you were probably not the best student. You didn't have all the A's. 
uh, but then you still on the other side wanted to mm -hmm. learn right and that's that's to me is is what university is about it's you should be motivated by learning not by the a grades that makes everybody feels good but in the end doesn't define what you can achieve and and i think you being here today and dedicating your time to your alma mater is is a demonstration of that and uh, i want to thank you for for your time and for sharing this um and and also as a guy that loves golf and technology and and having fun and i kind of think that you put it all together <laughs> with with both of the company you've been ceo so that i i went to pashak in Aubrook and food was amazing as an italian i love food i think it, it was it was you nailed it it was it was perfect um i want to reflect on something though because as you mentioned like when you took over top golf there was only one location and then there was the recession and when you took it on pot shock uh there was the pandemic right so these are not really situation where uh you know being a good ceo uh, it, it takes a lot to be a good ceo but take it in this situation of uh, emergency or like something that can be unpredicted is is way more challenging i i just want to take it can i ask you like what did it take you uh, to to take over those kind of situation and to overcome what you know a pandemic means for a place where you need to have people there to have fun and enjoy and and they probably can't the way they wanted to or they the way they could before. Yeah. So, so I think it, it's a great question. Um, and um, ironically, our one of our other executives and I were talking yesterday, and he was very nice in complimenting me on on a skill set that that I think I'm pretty good at. <clears throat> um, and that's and that is in difficult times, remaining as calm as you can and not panicking. So when the pandemic hit and we had no choice but to close you know, all of our locations because the government required it, um, and we had all of these associates that were now weren't working anymore, et cetera, um, you, you know, the board meeting was an interesting board meeting because investors were like, my God, like we got to cut costs now. We got to lay everybody off. We got to, you know, like they had all their solutions, which were all what I would say is not surprisingly panic answers. Right. Um, and, and I, and I do a better job now of leading a board than I did like 15 years ago when I was doing it. <clears throat> Again, it's some of that wisdom and mistakes along the way. Um, and so what I said, I said, you know, no, no, we're not going to do anything for at least 10 days because we're going to see how this plays out for the next 10 days, what governments decide to do. And then we're going to make decisions and we're going to look at what do we need to do in the immediate term, what we think we need to do to position the business in the media, you know, for a medium range, and then how we think this may come out. And in those 10 days, the, in, it was the UK where we had most of our venues, the UK came out with a government plan that basically said, don't lay off all of your workers. We will pay them up to 80% of what they were making before up to the equivalent in US dollars of 35,000 a year. Now, most all our competitors in London had, had already laid everybody off, right? So if I go back and say, we care deeply, and that means we care deeply about our associates and we laid them all off. And then in some of those concepts, they hired them all back right? Because the government was going to pay their wages now. But you've already sent the message to those associates. You've already told them what you're going to do when something goes wrong. And so I think it's kind of trying to keep your head in and think logically in challenging times, whether it's a pandemic pitch or even in the Great Recession when the market like, you know, like over a week period of time or two weeks, whatever it ended up being, right? Where the market just absolutely crashed. Everybody was panicking. What are we going to do? Oh my God. In both of those cases, we found a way to position the business, adjust based on the circumstances. And we actually gained market share when our competitors were losing it. I'm not a genius. I have, <laughs> I'm not a genius. I have really smart people around me and I listen to them. I'm, to me, the big the I I'm kind of really more like the the conductor in an orchestra. I no longer play an instrument. Right? Mm -hmm. I 
I, I am a CPA still, but our CFO is a much better finance guy than me. Right? I had an emphasis at Northwestern in marketing. Our CMO is, she is brilliant and so much smarter than me. Right. But I can, I, I, my, where my skill set now fits is I can conduct that orchestra and listen to those people and help guide and, and surround myself with people who think differently. There's another thing that's important as you get into leadership opportunities is because people, human nature is you tend to surround yourself with people who think like you, because that's how we, that's how we pick our friends, right? Like, Hey, they have the same interests as I do. That's why, that's why we're attracted in business though. You really want every different perspective. So you need to, so I need to consciously hire people who I know are going to have differing views than other people who are already on the team. Right. How do we create that diversity, not just how people look, but also how they think? So, so Joe, when you're, when you're talking about all of those different elements and a lot of your work, at least in, in the recent past, has, has been on an element of, of business and integrating technology and, and utilizing some of those things in new spaces technology is constantly shifting and changing too. So even the the patent, for example, that you may have in, in five years, it could be completely something different or you have a new competitor coming with something different. How do you, um, in, a, in an industry that is built on changing and, and it, it, it's going to, we know that, um, how, how do you plan for that? How do you navigate that? Because uh, even when you're at the highest and and you know might have all market share, if one startup comes and and hits it, it, it can it can shift relatively quickly within that that utilization of technology. Yeah, that's got to be a little unnerving, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> well. I I try not to react too much to what our competitive set will do, right? And okay. Our lead our own uh, destiny, but but no, it's a great point. We are enormous part of who Pachak is is a technology company, okay. And so part of what excites me is the fact that I know the game that we've been able to create so far today, but I also know that we're just scratching the surface. That also means that we have to recognize exactly what you were just saying, and we have to invest in that. Right. I would say our second biggest department is on the technology side. It's software development, et cetera. Right. And then not too far behind it is our R&D team that is constantly looking at the technology that we have from a hardware standpoint and how can we make it better? How can we continue to improve it? Right. Um, because one of the competitive advantages we have and we want to make sure we maintain is if some, if I'm looking at the competitive set really small, which is other uh, miniature golf concepts, which there are some out there, we can change the game by changing the software. None of them have the ability to do that because they're all, they're geared towards adults, but they're still traditional miniature golf. So the only way they can change it is to physically change a hole, right? We can introduce a game that is a team related game that's ideal for events and, and companies, right? We can do a skins game. We can do a uber competitive game where players can steal points from each other. And we can do all of that by just de designing new software and never having to physically change any hole. Now, at the same time, we continue to introduce new holes, new hole designs, but that part takes about 18 months to find a good hole that we believe we want to add into the mix and then kind of build it and, and make sure that it's essentially ready to actually roll out within a venue. That's much more costly and, and time consuming than being able to update software. That's that's really interesting to to think about how how you're kind of setting yourself up as a business and as a company to be flexible and to utilize that stuff instead of still creating something that's concrete within that one. Um, is that 
is that a mindset that you take into to leadership as well? Because again, within this company, there are, like you said, you have a CFO, you you have people that are worrying about the taxes, which are, you know, cut and dry and all that stuff. Is that something that you do? Or do you kind of compartmentalize that and say, these are the people that are being innovative and interesting, but I need these ones. Is that something you have to navigate or uh, or, or what's that experience like? So our executive team, which includes our myself, our CFO, our head of real estate, our CMO, our general counsel, and our head of our COO and head of technology, right? So whatever that is now, six of us. Um, <clears throat> we look at all of it. We look at every major aspect and strategic aspect of the business, and that includes all of the technology. And then there are times that we will have a smaller subset, just so that when we have decisions to make, um, you know, like what I'll say, real-time decisions, development decisions, right? You don't have too many voices, but when, but as an example, we're going to be launching a new product next year when we open up Dallas, okay. and it's and it's a standalone whole product, right? So <clears throat> similar to Top Golf, where you'll be able to stay in one place, you'll have essentially what amounts to a singular hole, but you can play six different games on, right? And it's ideal for groups that want to eat, drink, and play without having to move, right? Well, when you're playing the golf game Top Putt Check now, you're going around and playing nine holes, right? <clears throat> and we have four courses, so you can have plenty of variety, but you're still walking around. Strategically, as we were looking at innovation, 18 months ago, two years ago, when we originally came up with the idea, we were like, hey, can we do this? And if so, how, right? We got everybody's input, right? On the executive team, not just the technology people, right? How, how do we approach it? How can, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean if in our real estate negotiations? What does that mean on the, on the marketing side as we're trying to drive sales? Does it work for event sales? You know, how do we, how do we navigate that? What does that mean in, in space layout with our internal design team? How can we do it with more simplistic technology? All of those, everybody gets involved in what's the right strategy if we're actually going to pursue this product to launch to market. And then as we hone in, then it'll begin to, once we develop the strategy of, yes, we want to do it, here's what we think, then we'll go make progress. Then we'll bring it back to the larger group to ask some more core strategic questions, right? And then, then it begins to hone in and go, okay, well, now it's narrowing in and the majority of it is our technology team, our marketing team, right? Um, and then the design people who are, who are designing it into, because we do all our, all our design work in-house, um, the spaces that where it's going to go. That's yeah, please. I want to ask one question because, uh, again, that there are a few things that I like and data is, is another big passion that I have. So I wanted to know like the, the importance of data or how, for example, Patrick leverage the data or collect data and how, the, how much that does it influence your decision? Data is absolutely critical to every decision we make. And when I say every decision we make, right, so... Um, because of the game and because of the technology, we get an enormous amount of guest data, right? So I know as a matter, I know for a fact, it takes on average 42 minutes to play nine holes at peak time. I know to the second how long every hole takes on average for somebody to play, right? And I can look at that ver variety throughout the day. Our core demographic is that 21 to 39 year old. All of our holes are designed for that. That's why we have a beer pong hole, a roulette hole, you know, trivia pursuit holes because they go to that target demographic. Mm -hmm. We do the same. So, so then the question is, okay, who comes? What time of the day do they come? Do they come by themselves? Do they come with other people? Is it date night? Is it group night? You know, like all of those things. And then what are the things to get them to come back, right? What are the triggers we have to do to get them to come back within the first 90 days of their first visit, right? How, how do we utilize the data that we're able to collect to drive that? But we also use an enormous amount of data in our site selection process, right? So if I go back to my top golf days, it costs $30 million to build a top golf. You build one in a wrong location, you have a really expensive driving range, right? So <laughs> cannot make a mistake. We've brought that same discipline. We've now identified 52 criteria that goes into our site selection process, right? It has to be the right location first. Then we get to, is it the right property deal? It could be a phenomenal deal, but if it's not 
if it doesn't meet our criteria for a location that's going to be successful, we won't even, we'll just walk away. I, I, I'm, I'm a little speechless in, in a good way, Joe, because when we're coming from an academic perspective, we, we say these things, we, we know, and, and I think us as a society understand, you know, data is important, that's what's happening within business and all of that stuff, but it, it's interesting when you put that to something that um, is fun. It, it's meant to be fun, and and it should be. But behind the scenes, there there is very real data collected, real accurate decisions that are being made, so that that fun can continue within that one. Um, Joe, you've been an incredible guest, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. But before we we sign off and we all head in our wonderful directions, I, I, I want to give you an open ended question and just say if if you were kind of going back, starting out fresh, finishing up a, a degree, that that first degree from NIU, what's what's some advice you you really wish someone would have told you and and not the, you know, traditional cliches of work hard, which is important. I, I understand that. But a lot of times, you know, we get those same ones, but you have a very unique perspective. So go for it. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell everybody on the call some of the same, you know, my kids are not 29, 28, and 22. So my youngest is a senior uh, in college. And um, and as I mentioned, he's going into investment banking, right? So what I wish I knew when I graduated college, right? It is that fine, work hard, blah, blah, blah. You know, all, it's not unimportant. There's a lot of truth to that. But I think what I try to convey to him is understand the price you pay for the sacrifices you make. Right. Because when you're younger, you don't necessarily know that there's a price that comes with that. Right. Like I openly acknowledge I spent years of my career as a workaholic. Right. And I and that created tremendous amount of stress on my family life. Right. That that was difficult for my wife. It was difficult for my kids when they were young. Right. And and I wasn't looking at the price that I was paying for what I was trying to do as a success on the career side. And, and I've spent time now going back going, hey, could I, how could I have done it differently, right? Because it's easy to go, yeah, but look where it's gotten. I truly believe I can still be in the same place having had better balance. And I would have had better balance if I was more consciously aware of what's the price I'm paying, right? And am I okay with that price, right? That's, as an example, when I said that we have a guy who's leaving today, Right. Part of why I know he's going to another company is because it, it's it's not as fun. It's a, it, in my mind, it's not as fun. <laughs> it's a medical device company, um, but his hours are going to be less, right? And there may be less stress because it's less dynamic because we have a lot of things growing and changing, et cetera. Right. So for him, I'm assuming that's the right balance for him, and that the and that that price trade off right? You don't teach that in college, right? Because it's hard to really say, hey, just step back and assess that. And it, and like with my son, I'm like, listen, if you're going to work 85 hours a week and, you know, you're, you're just do it consciously and know you're doing it because you're trying to learn something and recognize the price you pay. Because if you do that for eight years, you may realize that you've just lost your 20s and you may have made a lot of money or some other things, but there was a price that you want to think about it along the way and ask yourself on a regular basis. Ask yourself every year, what's the next year going to look like? Does that price reward, does that make sense? Because that'll, by the way, that'll evolve. Things I would have done when I was 35, 38 years old to advance my career, right? Were, the, were, were decisions that would be, I was happy to, not happy. The price reward was worth it, right? I wouldn't be willing to do that today, right? And that's fine because I'm at a different stage in my career and in a different stage in my life, right? So all of that evolves, right? It's a journey. So you have to ask yourself those, in my opinion, I, I would encourage people to ask those questions because you're willing to do something when you're coming out of college and you're trying to establish your career that when you're 28, you may go, I'm not willing to do that anymore. But if you don't ask yourself the question, you may find yourself still doing it at 32. Wow, Joe, that was uh, absolutely brilliant. And thank you for sharing that with 
all of our listeners and, and myself, it, it, truly thank you for all of the knowledge that you've uh, passed along. I know for me, it was absolutely incredible and enjoyable. So I'm very grateful again for this time. And I, I'm I'm going to speak for myself. I'm going to try and make like an NIU putt shack day happen. So like know that that's on the horizon. Uh, I think we might have an in. I don't know, but we'll see about that. So everyone on the call be looking out um, for that Please, one. But if, you know, I'm willing to help. <laughs> all right, perfect. <laughs> if, if nothing else, though, everyone for real, putt shack, it's a really in, enjoyable and unique experience it's it's if you don't know about it at least jump on their website watch it. it it's very very cool and and absolutely enjoyable so again joe thank you so much for being here i i wish you the best and and again have a really good rest of your day okay thanks i really appreciate you having me i enjoyed it very much and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Gateway brought to you by NIU's College of Business. Please make sure to subscribe to The Gateway. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you are so inclined, please feel free to give us those five-star ratings, which help allow us to continue to bring wonderful guests to the gateway. Thank you all for listening, and remember to love always the promise of tomorrow, today.